guess the final thing that we really wanted to, to dabble more was, I know it's a little bit personal. I wanted to talk about your perspective on your Korean heritage. And have you tried finding your Korean family? I'm sure your parents probably might uh, not be there, but perhaps you might have other family out in Korea. Has that ever sparked your interest at all? Or I'd love to find them. I signed up on, uh, this has been a long time ago. 23 and me. I know that's a new one that I haven't signed up with. There was, um, what is it? The ancestor something. Ancestry or three twenty five camera. I think that's it for what I know. My heritage. Yeah, and then there's another one which all it is. It's not a DNA thing. It's just a thing where you register that if you're wanting to find your birth mother. I don't remember what that one is called. If you want to find your birth family, you leave whatever details you have about yourself. Like where you were found, when you, you know, what year, when you were born, how you were adopted. But I've never gotten any response for it. But when I was younger, I, I didn't. I never, ever wanted to meet because I, I went through this entire phase where I so didn't want to be Asian. I wanted to be a white person because I just wanted to be part of the world that was successful and accepted. And I saw that as being a white world. And I really tried for a long time. I really tried. I didn't have the identity with my race. And that really didn't come about. I didn't start moving into the place of saying, you know what, I'm Korean. My racial ethnicity is Korean. Well, it's until my 40s, so about 20 years ago. I'd love to now. Is that a really uh, important part of your psyche? Do you feel like you're missing that piece of the puzzle, or is it something that you can kind of, if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, or is it something that you're kind of obsessed with, the, the idea? I'm guessing with your wisdom, you're probably not obsessed at all. I'm not really obsessed with much of anything. I know that wherever it is that I'm supposed to be and whatever is supposed to be, wherever I'm supposed to be, they're going to come together. I, I just know that. I have obsessions for Taco Bell tacos and hamburgers. And I have obsessions for those kinds of things. But life kinds of things, I don't have obsessions about it. Do I feel like it's a missing part of the piece? I think there would be a lot gained in being able to see and have the experience of where your bloodline came from. I think there would be an amazing experience in that. Do I think I have to have it? No, but I don't think I have to have anything. What I do know is that for as long as I didn't want to have the identity of being Korean, it meant there was something over here that I still carried shame about. And that was the freeing day when I could proudly stand up and say, my ethnicity is Korean. Now, my social ethnicity is Caucasian because everything about me was how I was raised, is how I learned to speak, it was how I learned to carry myself. It was a lot of the attitudes in my thinking. And, you know, it influenced the fact that I always choose Caucasian males as the mates because that's what I grew up with. And so that's what I learned to be attractive and as being, you know, what was right for me. But no, I don't feel that it was a necessity. Would I love for it to happen? Yes, I would love for it to happen. And I probably will make a visit back to Korea one day. I've never been back. I was supposed to go when the Olympics were there. So you never been to Korea at all then, huh? No. Well, I was found there, but I haven't ever been back since my adoption. Wow. Is it due to financial issues right now or the COVID or you're just... It's not the number one important thing to do. I was supposed to go when the Olympics was being held there. That's when we actually visited our birth family, actually. The Olympics. Olympics. Was it? We actually yeah. went to see the Olympics. 
it, weird things. Every time I was supposed to go to Korea, some weird thing happened. So it just is not bad. But what happened then, somebody died. When I was supposed to go to the Olympics, somebody died. I don't remember who it was, but somebody died. It was somebody I had to go go to the funeral for, and that was why I didn't go to that Olympics. I was supposed to go. There was a, a lady that became a friend of mine, and she was from Korea, and she had still had a clothing business there. And I was supposed to go back and visit with her, only then her husband came back, and her husband just absolutely was really jealous of me so i kind of had to just step out of that relationship and then there was a third time i was supposed to, some weird things happened every time i was supposed to visit korea so it just hasn't been whatever the moment was it just wasn't there i guess some of the advice that i have for a lot of adoptees even if they can't find their birth records i think going to korea is, is kind of a healing experience in my opinion that's what i found and i think it's an important piece I absolutely agree. I cannot see that any negative would come from that other than whatever stories one might write about that negative. I mean, I know for me, it was one of the things that we were talking about earlier, one of the most powerful tools that ever came into my life was reframing. And because that story that I had been found in a trash can, it really stigmatized me for a long time. Can I actually ask you about that? Yes. Because sometimes they fake the records. As far as I know, it is. And I know there's a lot of people saying that it was. I think that it, it really was. Do I know for a fact? No, I don't. But it was one of the beautiful things that this therapist gave me. In reframing, if you have a story that is your story that you've identified with and you can't prove the facts one way or the other, then reframing is about taking that story just like you guys will do with this video and looking at it frame by frame by frame and creating a story that you can live with. And the story that I created for my birth mother, and it was beautiful and wonderful, is that I got to see her as this very young child who gave birth to me and then kept me. And I'm definitely not full Korean, and Koreans are extremely prejudiced against a lot of the other races. So she kept me alive. And I saw a young child, and I mean young child, 16 years old with a baby that she could barely carry. And what I saw was in that moment when she placed me in that trash can, it was five degrees below zero. If I hadn't been put inside of somewhere, I wouldn't have survived the elements 10 minutes. It was five below. And I was a year at the least or possibly two years old when they found me. So she kept me alive for at least a year. So she had to be this brave, incredible, amazing, unbelievable woman. And what I saw was when she placed me in that trash can, I saw a young child that loved me more than anything in life. And that she said goodbye and that what she had made was the ultimate sacrifice of a mother who says, I want you to live. I want you to have a future. And I cannot give that to you. But I want you to know I will always love you. I have always loved you. I have always loved you. And that was the vision for creation that I made for my birth mother and the whole story around the trash can. Now, do I know that it's true? I do not. But I am the creator of the story that I am so worthless that I was thrown in a trash can. I am the same creator that creates the story that my birth mother was an amazing, courageous woman that loved me so much that she gave me an opportunity to survive. She chose the trash can so I could survive the elements. She chose the restaurant 
because it was the busiest restaurant in Seoul, which guaranteed that I would be found very quickly. And so I have a choice, which story do I want to live in? I choose the one that serves me. I don't know the truth of either one. I choose the one that uplifts me. That's just amazing because you have an empathetic view and then through that empathetic lens, uh, you're able to forgive, it sounds like, you and understands. Yes. I could see that as someone's like go-to to why they can't amount to anything in life, but changing your perspective, changing the narrative, trying to see the positive, grateful, that has helped shape you. Yes. To realize that you are worth it. You are something. Yes. That's it. Yes. Exactly. And I think that that's amazing. I, I read those articles and that's just, it's just awesome. So my question to you is like, we went through some pretty tough subjects with you and like other people that we've actually talked to regarding some of the subject matter, they end up breaking down and crying, but you, you seem to be pretty strong. Was there times that you cried before that, or you don't like crying on camera or, or something else? No, I have cried on stage. I have cried on camera. I cry often with my clients. For me, the pain is not there unless I need to connect to it to make a connection with somebody else. So when I think about those experiences, the trauma is not there for me anymore. And so I can talk about them in a very factual way. But when I'm connecting with a woman who is living in domestic violence and she can't break free of it. I'm one of the few people who will still work with women who choose to stay because what I got a long time ago, that's when a woman needs somebody more than anyone else when she can't find her way out. And so that's what I do. I tell them that's okay. You choose to stay. And the only thing we're going to do is we're going to work on you being the healthiest, healthiest woman that you can be. And that's going to make you the best mate to you your husband, the best mother to your children. We're going to work on you becoming healthy because the moment women start truly becoming healthy, they can't stay in that situation of domestic violence. When they start living in presence and they start being able to see things outside of the codependency and all of the browbeating and all of the abuse that keeps them small, the moment they can start seeing what's real in that moment, that's the moment when she'll choose to walk away, but not until then. Do you remember the event with yourself that you chose to walk away from your, the one that abused you? He threatened my life that if I ever decided to leave him, he would hunt me down, kill me and anyone who ever tried to help me. So when I initially decided, and I am sad to say that what caused me to leave him is because he made the mistake of picking up my cat because he knew he was losing control. I had finally mastered the art of being able to control every part of my being, my tone of voice, the cadence, the loudness, the content, the smile on my face, the lack of smile in my eyes, the body language. I had finally gotten to the place, all of these reasons why he had to start beating me. I finally got to the place where I could do whatever it is he demanded so that I wouldn't get beat. And I understood he was never going to stop beating me. It was something he had to do. But he made the mistake of picking up my cat to try and gain control. And he said, you got a choice. I can snap his neck right now or you do what I tell you to do. And I looked at him and I said, snap his neck. 
and you better hope you get to my neck first because I will kill you. And that was the end for me. That was when I walked away and I was going to run away, but I realized that I would look over my shoulder for the rest of my life and I'd be in fear for anyone that was a part of my life. So I called him up and I said, I need to see you. And I said, I want you to know I'm going to make it easy for you because I am going to leave you. And I'm going to leave you standing on my two feet, walking out the door. I'm going to leave you as a dead woman. It doesn't matter which way you want to go. But my neck's right here. You want to break it? It'll be the only one you have to kill. You aren't going to have to kill 10 other people that tried to help me. But if you don't kill me today, I am walking out the door and I am leaving you. And he paused and he took a moment. And he said, girl, he said, you're never going to understand. I had more respect for you than 10 men that I know. And I am the only man that's ever going to be right or man enough or woman who's as tough as you are. And he said, but because of who you've been in my life for the last 13 years, I'm going to give you a pass. And he did. And he has never attempted to do any damage to me since. But that's how I walked out. That's amazing. I guess the only way that kind of opened your eyes, because it was affecting someone else, not your, yourself. It was affecting a, an animal. For me, I don't know. I somehow have felt my whole life I was so tough. And then I, I fell into that responsibility. I was the one that convinced him to become a legal human being instead of the stuff that he had done before I met him. And I felt responsible for his failure, and I bought into that whole story. But you don't ever get to abuse something that's helpless around me. I don't care who you are. I don't care how big you are. You do not get to do that on my watch. It does not happen. There is some warrior that lives inside of me that I will go down dying, dying before I let someone abuse something weaker than them in my presence. And I can't tell you what that is, but that was the mistake he made. He, he might have had many more years with me. I, would, I might have hung in there and decided that, you know, I was still going to be able to help him and make a difference for him. It might have been. But the moment you take something and you threaten something that's helpless, that loves you. And I look at that and I saw the fear in that cat's eyes. And you can do this and you can be okay with that. Well, I'll tell you what, you are not okay with me. And we will go one-on-one, -on -one, I promise you. And that, that warrior just there lives with me. And it is. Did you ever tell that story to some of your other abuse victims? Yes why you walked away and that kind of opened your eyes and yes gave you the strength yes many times many times and there has been the stories that i told when he had left me so broken that i was in the hospital and he had drugged me behind his vehicle and so much damage had been done to the left side of my body that the plastic surgeon he didn't think that i was ever going to be scar free and my ability to heal is incredible because I truly believe that healing is within us. I think we can heal our own body. And he could not believe it. And a surgeon kept coming back to visit me and, and saying, he said, I wish I had this on camera. He said, I've never, he said, I've never seen anybody heal like this. But when I woke up in the hospital and I realized that my husband who had done this and told me how much he loved me was in Las Vegas and had his attorney call me, call me to school me on how I had to talk to the hospital so he did not get brought up on charges. The tears 
the aloneness, the fear, those are the moments when I will cry with my client because she knows, she knows, I know exactly where she has been. And so crying for me, crying for me is really something that is reserved. It's something that really only shows up for me when I know that it's necessary for the healing of someone else. Or when I'm grieving. And when I'm grieving, the tears just flow. But on the natural, tears are just not something that show up for me very often. And it's not that I prevent them because I am so not about controlling anything. Just know that. So it's that when I hear the words control, I ask everybody, replace that. How about choosing to be or I choose to change? Control is a soda bottle that you take the cap off of, put your thumb on, shake it up and down, slam that cap back on. It's the last seminar, the last psychiatrist she's there. And it's okay for a while, but eventually the pressure is going to get so big in that bottle, it's going to spray over everything. Everything about being in presence is knowing that you are empowered to choose every second and every moment of your life. There is no control. There is no have tos. There are no shouldos. There are no, well, none of that is part of the way in which I live in life. There, control is not it. Yeah, I got to learn to control my behavior. I got to learn to control my, no. What I need to do is recognize what is so about my behavior and make a choice. What do I keep? What do I not keep? Yes. I kind of wanted to ask you about that subject. Domestic abuse is becoming quite a bit in the news. I'm seeing, I don't know if you're, you're in and out of the celebrities and stuff, but Johnny Depp and Amber yes. Heard, apparently Amber Heard, yes. the abuser, Marilyn Manson, and uh, forgot her name, but she recently named him. What is your perspective on these men that, uh, and women, I guess, that abuse people? Are they really as evil? Should we demonize them? Or do we need to see them from a compassionate lens? And what's your perspective on that? we need to see them from a compassionate lens and there's no need to i choose to see them from a compassionate filter i don't condone anything that they are doing i understand it because i know that inside me lives an abuser as well it is how we make that link it's how we have one generation that passes it on to the next, the next, because whatever we've learned, it's there. And I know that within me, there is, there is the capability of being an abuser. An abuser is somebody who feels powerless. That's why learning to become present and discovering the power of presence, that's why it's a solution for them. Because see, the child that was powerless and had to take abuse, the day anger shows up, oh my God, it's the most powerful thing in the world and it's what you're going to hold on to and it's why anger goes into your future. Because all of a sudden you're a child that can't stop the bad things from happening and one day you lose it. And all of a sudden these adults that you couldn't stop, they can't get out of the room fast enough. And from the child, you look up and you go, I'm powerful and you associate your only power with anger and so now from now on when you go forward into the world when things don't go your way and you feel powerless that's what comes out the anger shows up and you can control much of the world around you because most of the world doesn't know how to survive in the midst of violence and chaos and the person that can 
It's the person that, that can be the guy that walks into a saloon and takes out seven bad guys. When you can hold presence and fear is not what dominates you, fear is not what motivates you, then you don't need these false things for power. And that's what anger is. It's, it's a protection mechanism because at one time you felt so powerless and so afraid and you couldn't stop those bad things from happening. And then anger showed up and somehow it showed up as a solution. And now inside of you, because you haven't understood what forgiveness and acceptance, and you, you've got your identity with all these things that were done to you. Now, all you want is just for somebody else to feel like you did just once. And that's the first time you turn around and you hit someone who's weaker than you. And for a few seconds, you feel powerful again. That's who an abuser who is not psychotic. That's who he is. Now, a psychotic individual who mentally they were born in the world, I personally, I think they're just demons in human bodies, and there are those human beings. There is nothing that we can do to cure them. I mean, they're really, literally, in my opinion, I, I crossed the path of a few. There's nothing we can do to cure them. They're going to die. The only thing we can do is catch them before they do enough damage. But for the and I don't want to say typical abuser, but the abusers that you read about in the media, they're the scared little person that got horribly abused when they were a child. And all they want is to quit feeling afraid. And the only way they ever found to quit feeling afraid was to let anger well up. It was the only time they didn't feel afraid. And so that's the only thing. That's the only thing that they've learned as a solution. So when they get afraid a little bit, I hear a rumor that their company's downsizing. Terror, terror fills their body, and they go home, and now terror says you've got one solution. It's the anger. But see, we can only hold so much anger inside of ourselves, and then all of a sudden, that poison, it just has to spill out. And so what happens, it's the woman that you know is dedicated to you. She will let you do that. Because see, abusers will never take on. I've, I've stepped between abusers and their victims. I don't know how many times. I've never been hit. And the reason why is abusers, abusers are cowards at heart. They're so afraid. And all they have to know is that you aren't afraid. That's it. Did that answer your question? Well, one, I don't have a good and bad. And hate to me. It's just a poison. I don't, I don't hate any of the people that have ever meant me harm. And it's because I have forgiven. And once I have forgiven, I need nothing from them. So when I move into that place of forgiveness, hate is taking up real estate in my head and not charging any rent. I mean, because when you truly hate somebody, they're still with you. The people that have, have abused me in my lifetime, they're not still with me other than their stories and their interaction. They provide me with the ability to offer healing to other people. But to hate, hate is this wish to destroy something. Hate is still this need to get something from someone. And it's a poison to me. So, no, I don't. I almost feel you don't have this philosophy of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because in reality, that's just revenge, and revenge has no purpose in the end. 
That's exactly correct. It is, it, it is not for me to ever be the judgment and punishment of someone else. That is not who I am supposed to be ever. Now, please do not hear it here. I am like this perfect person that, you know, lives presence perfectly and I'm always calm and I never treat anyone with any disrespect. Oh, hell no. I have temper tantrums. I have days that I wake up and I'm going, I just freaking feel sorry for myself today and I am having a pity party and I give myself permission to do so. It's, it's okay. I'm going to have days where that's what I, that's, that's my experience for that day. But I don't live there. I don't stay there. Those aren't my solutions for life. Do I have times when I yell? I got so upset with a lady in the store one time, and I'm really sorry it happened. But I did. I, I demeaned her unbelievably. But I called the store back up. I made a full apology. And I told them, and an apology, and the only way an apology, an apology never includes the word, but no apology ever includes the word, but I am sorry, but that just cannot happen. An apology is I was absolutely wrong in what I chose to do and the behavior I engaged in with you. I am so very sorry that you were the brunt of my frustration on that day. And is there anything that I can do to make this better for you? That's an apology. And I've, I've had to make apologies to a lot of people. So I don't do this walk perfect. My life isn't just this little rosy, everything is absolute perfection. So do you feel the ultimate solution? Like what if you have an abuser that will never apologize? Do you just say, well, this is the present, be mindful and forgive them is i don't need an apology from anybody actually i don't personally do not need an apology from anyone i it, see apology to me is a change of behavior if you change the behavior you don't need to apologize to me if you don't change the behavior i'm not probably going to choose to keep you in my close circle i have circles and people all fall in and everybody starts in this outer circle you don't have permission to hurt my feelings until you've earned the right of integrity where you have walked in line with me. And what I get is you'll never intentionally choose to harm me. Then you get to move up another circle and you get to move up another circle. Trust is something that's built with me. It's based on how it is you choose to be. And so apologies in my relationships. Yeah, I want apologies. Do you truly believe in this that? Can an abuser truly love their victim and a victim love their abuser, or is that Stockholm syndrome? Yes, they absolutely, they both can be there. It's not a healthy love, but it's love. It's just not a healthy love because healthy love should not make your world smaller. And people who live in domestic violence, their world gets really, really, really tiny. Love should not make your world smaller love should not cause harm to one another but that's healthy love the problem people that are in domestic violence situations they haven't developed a core identity for themselves and they haven't found the courage of vulnerability 
The problem and why most of those relationships don't last long-term is because only one person chooses to get healthy at a time. If both the victim and the abuser would choose to get healthy at the same time, there probably would be more of those relationships that would endure because people do actually choose people that are a compliment to them. Unfortunately, the biggest compliment when we're choosing people is the damage. And so relationships that are based on damage, they have really, really strong bonds. It doesn't mean that the person doesn't feel love in the way in which they identify love. It just simply means they don't love in a healthy way. So, yes, I think they, they can have love for one another. Do you feel that a victim of abuse stays with an abuser for a little long because they love their abuser or they're afraid of change? The majority, and I speak mostly of women because that's, that's been my experience. Or is it both, maybe? Abusers, because they are abusers, one of the things they gain is they are charismatic. And because they have a desire to victimize. To control. Yes. They're very good at the observation thing. They're better at it than most. And so that's why they can pick out the woman in the bar that is the woman that they can abuse, the woman that they can rape, they can pick her out. With the same thing, they're really smart, and so they get, they can't make every second and every moment of every day until they beat her into absolute submission. Up to that point, until where her spirit is broken, they know that what they have to do is they gotta charm her part of the time, and then they can beat her the rest of the time. And so, for a woman who's never known love, when a man comes along and offers to you something that you have wanted your entire existence, and that is someone that says, I see you as you are with all your faults, because that's where it'll start with an abuser. He sees your faults. I love you anyway. I know you're exceptional. I get who you really are, and I'm going to help you get there. And the next thing is going to be something down the road and she's going to do something. And it'll start with something small like a slap. I had to get your attention. I feel really bad about that. Come here, baby. Here. Let me stitch you up. I love you, baby. You are an awesome, incredible woman. And I hope you don't ever do that again because I don't like doing this to you. I don't like it when you make me like this. It makes me feel horrible. I feel horrible about myself for days. And this is what you do to me. And I don't like it. But I forgive you because I know you really love me. I know you really get me. And I know you're trying. And sometimes it's just too hard for you. But I understand you. I get you. I'm going to be there for you, baby. I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to be like all those other people did. They see a little problem and they're gone and you can't count on them. No, that won't be me. I'll be there for you, baby. I promise I'll always be there. And you know, I am so sorry that I ever had to hurt you. I wish I'd give anything. I pray to God right now that you don't ever make me do that to you again. Abusers know how to romance. You almost believe they're full-blown manipulators. It's not good. Oh, they absolutely. They're that good. Yes. Are you familiar with the terms like gaslighting, like grooming? Mm-hmm. 
that seems to be common amongst uh, abuse relationships. Yes, and it's very real because that's how you break a woman's spirit. Because abuser ultimately, he wants a woman that he can completely break her spirit and that she will just allow him to do anything. And yet when that happens finally, that becomes his reason to abuse her every second of every day because he has such disrespect for a woman who has no more respect for herself than that. But that's all of that is to break the spirit. Because if you can convince a woman she's crazy when she's telling you, no, I found lipstick on your collar. Oh my God, you stupid, crazy You don't remember bumping into me in the hall? That's not my... What do you mean it's not your collar? You want me to go get it right now and shove it down your face? You calling me a liar? See... That's what gaslighting is. It says something very valid. It's real. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to create a scenario where you have to doubt yourself and believe that he's the only truth. That's what the abuse is going to create for you. It makes people question their reality, I, I think, what you're saying. Okay. Well, I guess my next question is, do you feel a victim is never at fault because they're constantly in belief that meaning they should be responsible for the choices they make. And I know there's people say that you're blaming the victim probably based off that. Well, what's your theory on this? It kind of depends upon the scenario. I mean, if a woman has just been raped and the next question out of your mouth and you know, she's been raped and the next question out of your mouth is, well, what were you wearing? Did you maybe, give him a inadvertent signal that he really wanted to? Did you give him mixed messages? That's making the victim responsible for her rape. In that scenario, yeah, you don't you don't make the victim responsible. The woman that stays in a domestic violence, faulting her is never going to make her leave because that's why she's with him to begin with is because he doesn't fault her in her mind. He faults her every day of her life a thousand different ways. But see, he convinces her that with all the stuff that's wrong with her, he loves her anyway, and he'll never leave her. And he doesn't see anything wrong with her. The rest of the world does. So you want to take a, a, a domestic violence victim and you want to ensure that she's going to stay with him? Start talking to her about how smart she is not. Start talking about her, what a bad mother she is. Start talking to her about what's wrong with her. She will run back to him in a heartbeat. I don't. So I guess the next question is when you coach some of these victims, what do you actually do to make them see that it's, it's harmful and not something that's good for them? The first few sessions, generally, I just listen. By the second or third session, I ask them, are you tired of crying every day of your life? And I wait for an answer. And they always say yes. And then I ask them, I said, well, what do you think the possibility is, is that if you left, got stronger, improved your situation, got a job, got a car, found a place of your own, what do you see as a possibility from that place of strength that you might be a real help to your husband? That from this place of strength, because see right now you're making it okay 
for him to be less than his best self. And I get, you see the good man that he is. But do you also see that somewhere in there, you are part of the matrix and you are dancing? And if you weren't there, he wouldn't be hitting you and he might not live through all the guilt? Do you, do you see that at all? And if they're not yet ready to see that, then I say, well, that's okay. So the only thing I want you to hold on to is know that you don't have to wake up and cry every day. And if you get tired, if you get to the place where you just cannot do this anymore, I know the way out. And until then, we're going to work on you being able to be okay with who you are inside of this relationship. By the time a woman begins a conversation with me, she's ready to make a change. A woman who is not yet ready to make a change, she won't face a conversation with me at all. She, she will avoid me at all costs. But by the time she's ready, when she talks with me, she's got a door open and she wants to start seeing a ray of hope. But I don't tell her what's wrong with her because I get all it's going to do is send her right back. Do you have to report this stuff to the police or it has to be all confidential? If there is going to be harm to a child, I absolutely do. If I think she's going to be killed, I absolutely do. I wanted to ask you, so since you work with like extremely difficult uh, issues like domestic abuse and pedophilia, what is more challenging? The pedophiles that probably, I know that they tend to repeat their offenses, am I correct? Well, there are actually four levels of sexual abusers. And pedophiles are the ones that everybody is familiar with. It is actually the category that has the least cure rate. Pedophiles truly believe that it's right for adults to have sex with children. They, they believe this in their entire being, and that's why there's really no cure right there. The only thing they don't want is they don't want the punishment, and that's the only reason why they stop the activity they're engaged in. But they, they do not believe there's anything wrong with what they do. There is the next level above a pedophile, uh, and a pedophile is number three. Number four is your violent, mentally ill, sexual abuser. And again, there's no cure rate for that category as well. And in that same category also are your psychopaths, serial rapists, those individuals. There's no cure rate there. The next level of sexual offender is what's called a progressive. And a progressive is not someone that's ever believed that sexual abuse is right, but they were generally they experience strong sexual abuse early in childhood. And they are the category of the offenders, what I consider the true offenders, that have the most instances of, of where it's heterosexual relationships, heterosexual abuse. Um, most of your pedophiles and those going up, it's, it's one way. But a progressive, what happens for them is something turns on the sexuality that was turned on for them as a child. They will be, they'll actually have adult relationships with a female if it's a male, they'll have, and I've worked primarily with men. 
but they'll have a, a relationship with an adult female and then something goes wrong, which it always does in that relationship. And if there's a child present in the relationship, they will have created a bond with that child because they're very childlike within themselves. They, they've never really matured at a really strong level. And so they create a bond with children that's just amazing. Children absolutely adore them. They know exactly the right way to what to say and how to play. And all of a sudden the relationship has gone really bad with the, the primary female. And now you and this child, they have this amazing, wonderful relationship and they have this play where it's nothing more than just wrestling and tickling. And the relationship has now gone bad with the woman in his life and the sex life has disappeared. And all of a sudden in one of the playtimes, the sexuality that happened for him as a child gets turned on. That's why it's called the progressive. And all of that sexuality that happened, it shouldn't have happened at an age. It shouldn't have happened because he wasn't, and I'm speaking of the last one that I worked with, he was not old enough to deal with sexuality. It happened to him when he was three, four, five, six years old. And you've got no life experiences to understand sexuality. All it is, your body gets turned on because those are the biological functions, you rub something in a certain way, there's a reaction. It just happens. It's the body. It's the way things happen. And so then they overnight turned into sexual abusers. But there's a high cure rate in that group, a very high cure rate, because they don't want to be sexual abusers of children. They do not want to. They can't understand why this drive just shows up automatically and there's nothing that they can do about it. And there's actually a high cure rate and they are a level two. The first level I don't think even belongs in that category. And that is kids that have sex before they turn 18. If there's a rape involved and a true rape where this forcibly sex happens that should not happen, then yes, that needs to be addressed. But kids, a 17-year-old that has sex with a 16-year-old and they're just not of age yet, and the father gets angry and says, that's it, I want him in jail for having sex with my daughter, that's statutory rape. Well, they end up on the sex offender list also. I personally don't believe they belong there. I think there needs to be a whole nother category for them which can really ruin a person's like rest of their life. Yep. Like finding jobs. Yes. Pretty sure it's a lot more common than, than what the, what is like said. It is. It, it's prevalent throughout. The only difference being, you know, a lot of them never have to face it because they either, a never got caught or they don't have an angry father demanding that, you know, the guy go to jail. Why 16, 17 bad. They're both underage. I can see maybe a 16 year old with an 18 year old, but. You mentioned 16, 17. Well, because 18 is considered the legal age. Yeah, which I know is wrong. but Okay, well, and so all I did was pick two ages that were beneath 18. So you meant 17 and 18 with the statutory rape, I think. No, 17, 16-year-olds. He's 17. He has sex with a girl who's 16. I didn't even know that was illegal between the teens. As long as they're underage, that's statutory rape. As long as anybody who's in that relationship is underage, it's statutory rape. So even if it's consensual, it's still considered statutory? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Because they're underage. And you just didn't get caught and nobody, no angry dad came along and said, hey, put him in jail. I thought the statutory limits was between when you're over 18 and then 
have sex with 17 and below. It, no, no, no. Statutory is anybody in the relationship is underage. Anybody. If they both are underage, that's statutory rape. How do you stop someone from doing it? Well, you don't. How what you do is it's in your education of your children. Because the only reason why we have age limits, a child who's six cannot understand sexuality. A child who a child who's 16 still hasn't developed enough in the world to really make smart choices about their sexuality. And your sexuality is going to get formed by whatever your first introduction to it is. And that's why there's so many women that don't know how to have an orgasm, because what they had was a fast fumble in the back of a car. And then they felt really guilty about it. And then the guy never called them back. And so now for the rest of their life, they don't know how to have an orgasm because they don't know their body. And they feel really guilty because this happened. That's why there needs to be an age category on sexuality. Because who we become as sexual beings is going to be how we're introduced to it. And we just really don't have the brain power to be really smart sexual human beings, not in this world. Maybe if we lived on an island and we all, you know, wore no red thongs, we all just ran naked in the jungle, you know, maybe we could just do the whole animal thing. I don't know. Is this a old wives tales for pedophiles? You can't cut their balls off and then they don't have those urges or is that not true? That's not true. Pedophilia is a mental thing. Do you think stage for pedophilia is like being gay? Uh, no, I don't really see the similarities between that two. Well, because you can't choose to be gay and you can't choose to be a pedophile. So there's a stance that some pedophiles want to put them in the same category as being gay. No. A pedophile is about an adult having sex with a child. That's pedophilia. It's not about two consenting males having sex together. So I don't even see how they're in the same realm. I mean, two mature males having sex together has nothing to do with an old man having sex with a little child. So you don't see that as a sexual preference then? No. Do most people that are pedophiles, is it because they're sexually abused or is it not because of that? The pedophiles that I have known, yes, there a lot of them had a lot of sexual abuse, but something changes for them in their mental chemistry and they truly believe that what they're doing is right. They really, they believe it through every aspect. The only regret I ever have for my life, it's amazing because See, this is the reason why I'm telling you, I have no hatred towards the world because people believe they are right in the moment in which they're right. Now, they're not, not from my world and not what's okay by me, but pedophiles truly believe that it is this beautiful thing and the way that it's supposed to be. I can see people getting really triggered by those words. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, so I don't really speak of that a lot, just in the general. But no, do I put them in the same category? Not at all. Not at all. Gay and pedophilia, no, they're not in the same category. So I think that we covered a lot of uh, information. I actually think I may put this in three parts. Is there anything that you want to address that we covered a lot? We primarily talked about trauma and abuse and the solutions and forgiveness and understanding, having compassion. Is there anything that you would like to address before we uh, close today? Well, the thing I'd really love to bring to the arena, and that is so many people don't get help because that's what they think is like, 
If I don't have the severe trauma in my life and in my history, then that's not where I belong. Most of the people I actually work with today, they haven't had that kind of trauma in their background. It has not been there. They've had trauma like being the child of an alcoholic parent or an addicted parent. There is nothing in the world that messes up a child worse than that because the person that they need to care about, that they need to believe is gonna be there for them, that's a child they got to be in constant observation of because every time they never know who's going to show up when they show up. Now, a lot of people would put that in the, in the horror category, but also I had a salesman that came to me. And the reason why he came to me was because he'd been top salesman in his company for a long period of time. And then he got promoted to a supervisor and all of a sudden he couldn't make his goals anymore and he couldn't figure out why. Well, his why was, was when he was a very tiny little boy, he got horribly embarrassed in school. And before that, he had been really gregarious and he had been really outgoing. And he was just this amazing, charming personality. He was really smart and he always had the right answers. But the first time he ever gave a really wrong answer in class and everybody in that class laughed at him, that was the day that little boy, he was like, I don't know, five or six. And he said, I'll never raise my hand again. I will never put myself in that position again. I will never, ever stand in front of the classroom. And that's the day that everyone started describing him as shy. And when he's not in his sales personality, he's very shy. But see, the reality is he's not shy. He never was. That's why he excels at being a salesman. And where he couldn't excel at being, because that's the place he gets to be the real him. It's the only place he gets to be the real him. But the day that he had to stand in front of the room and be a supervisor, couldn't do it. And I tell you this story because I want you to know that most of the work that I do, it isn't with people who have the strong domestic violence going on. It isn't with the people who are in the midst of, of strong addictions. It's not with the people who are dealing with pedophilia. It's not, it's not with the families that are dealing with sex abuse within the family. Majority of my clients are everyday people that have gotten stuck somewhere in their life and they cannot figure out with all the gifts that they have been given, they can't figure out why they're stuck there. And that's what the conversations that we have is to finally uncover what it is, it's in their subconscious. It's telling them, you can't do this. Don't do it. Danger, danger, danger. I give the voice to that inner child that they can't yet hear. And the moment you can hear that voice live that talks to you, the one that no one else can hear, the moment you can hear that, that's when you can step into presence and know that that's not your identity. That is not what you have to choose to do. You can comfort that inner child and say, hey, you know what? Thanks for showing up. I am so grateful that you are my loyal companion. You've done everything in the world to try and protect me, but I got it from here. I got this. It's my turn to take care of you. Now I want you to go play. That's all you should have ever done. And you can trust that I will have your back. I love you and I will never leave you. Let me handle the decision-making from this moment going forward. Those are the individuals that I work with the most. Those are the people that are the most reluctant to get some help. And those are the people that feel like they shouldn't need help. And so that's the group who I really would love for them to hear they are. They're, they're carrying trauma. 
and it prevents them from having a life they love. And it's not necessary. All they got to do is find out what conversation is going off in their head. They just need to be able to hear it. And that's what we do in the work that I do as a coach. I give the voice. I give a microphone to that voice that goes off in your head and says, you can't do this. Don't do it. Warning, danger. What did you do to help that guy? Did you just go back to being a lowly salesman or? No, what he did when he recognized it, that was at the moment where he no longer could be who he was. Then what we did is start creating the visuals. He saw himself as that little boy. And all you ever have to do when fear shows up, give comfort to your inner child. That's literally all you have to do. Give comfort to your inner child. Let them know you're there. You're going to take care of them. You're grateful they showed up. Acknowledge them. Comfort them. Love them. And relieve them from the responsibility of decision making. That's all you have to do. Then ground and make the choice as to what you do, what you want to do in this present moment. That's literally all you have to do. We have the capacity to be our own great parent. It's just most of us don't know how. I think you created a lot of excellent points. We covered a lot. I was kind of curious. Maybe the title should be uh, This Life Coach Wants to Help You Comfort Your Inner Child. How do you feel about that title? You know what? I have all the confidence in the world that you guys are going to brilliantly come up with what is the exact right for, for all of this. And so I'm, I'm going to leave that to your arena. We've definitely talked a long time. We really appreciate it. So we're going to end it here. Thanks for hanging in there. And we talked a lot of excellent topics. This is Kyle and Travis, and this is with uh, Sasha Fergoni. She's a life coach. If you are in a stage of your life that you're looking for advice, please feel free to reach out to her, which we'll provide in the description as well. Thanks, everybody. You have a good night. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.